So it so happens that there are three ways in which the gospel writers complete the sentence that begins, the Son of Man came, the Son of Man referring to Jesus. First, Mark 10:45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Secondly, Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Those two sentences are statements of purpose. They, they tell us what Jesus came to do, what he came to achieve. But there's a third way that the gospel writers complete that sentence, and it comes in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, where we read, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And that third statement is different because it's not a statement of purpose. It's a statement of method. It addresses the question, how did Jesus come? And the answer is, he came eating and drinking. Now, I don't know about you, but I love that statement. I mean, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope that simple statement makes you just want to know even just a little bit more about this Jesus. And if you are a Christian, I hope that, that you're, and you're wondering, you know, what should my life look like in terms of loving my neighbor and, and sharing my faith? Isn't there just a simplicity to that statement that is sort of liberating? The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And if you want to find the highest concentration of stories of Jesus eating and drinking in the Bible, then you ought to go to Luke's gospel, because Luke focuses more on occasions of Jesus eating with people than any of the other gospels. In fact, Luke pays so much attention to Jesus eating with people that, as one scholar put it, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. And in Luke 14 that we're looking at today, the chapter begins with Jesus on his way to one of these meals. Luke tells us that on this occasion, the meal he was going to was being hosted by one of the most prominent of the Pharisees, one of the senior religious leaders of the day. However, from the moment that Luke introduces the scene here, it is charged with tension. The walk to the Pharisee's house was not a relaxed stroll for Jesus, because he's being watched with great suspicion by the religious leaders. They already had serious doubts about Jesus based on who they'd seen him interact with, who he hangs out with, the, the uh, diseased, the outcast, the notorious sinners. And then to make matters worse, on this particular Sabbath, this day of rest, Jesus had healed a man, a man who was ill with dropsy. But through everything that's going on, Jesus just sees through their pretentiousness and their pride and their presumption. And so as they, they start to get settled in for this meal at this dinner, he decides he's just going to liven things up a little bit by telling three back-to-back -back stories, three parables. And the first comes before the passage we're looking at in verses 7 to 11 in Luke 14, where Jesus pokes at the pride of these guests as they jockeyed for the best seats at the table, arging and barging past one another, like, like passengers in one of those low-cost airlines where there are no seat assignments. And then Jesus follows that up with a second shorter story in which he exposes the motives of the host of this dinner for inviting the people that he'd invited. What looked like generous hospitality was in reality a self-serving strategy for securing dinner invitations in return from his guests, a sort of I scratch your back, you scratch mine sort of thing. And with these stories, you've got to believe it. Jesus is going for the jugular here, and everybody knows it. 
Because it quickly appears that the tension is rising in the room, and it's becoming unbearable for some of those who are present, such that one of the guests exclaims out of the blue, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, won't it be wonderful when all of us who are gathered here get to eat in the heavenly banquet? And that sounds so devout, and it sounds so religious, but it really at its core was an effort on this guy's part to just ease the tension, to shift the conversation with the speaker, perhaps at the same time wanting to impress Jesus with his piety. And Jesus sees the game this guy is playing, and he's clearly thinking, uh uh no one's going to get off the hook by someone trying to change the subject of the matter that we're looking at here. And he tells the parable that we're about to look at now the third of three parables. The parable we'll be addressing here as we continue in our series this summer in the parables. And as we look at this parable, I want you to notice three things this morning. First of all, uh, the master and his mercy. Secondly, the reality of our rejections. And then thirdly, the gospel we've been given. But let's read the passage first at uh, Luke 14, verses 12 to 24. You'll find it on page 10 in your order of worship this morning or page 874 in your pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord. He, that is Jesus, said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." One of those who reclined at table with him heard these things. He said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. They all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. It's trustworthy, it's true, and it's given to us in love. Uh, Pray with me, please. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So first, let's think about the master and his mercy. Look again at verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Now, this guest who had just piped up to sort of try to diffuse the tension was not completely off base with his comment, because as Jesus starts this third of his three parables, he likens God to a man planning a feast, a banquet. This is one of the many ways that Jesus sought to depict the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, this rule and reign of God into which you and I have been invited, is like a feast, he says here. It's like a party. It's something plentiful and generous and joy-filled and and delightful. And as was so often the case with the imagery that Jesus used uh, to depict uh, the kingdom in the parables, Jesus didn't just pluck this image out of thin air. 
Last week, Chris showed us how Jesus' use of the vineyards in his teaching drew primarily from the prophet Isaiah's depiction of Israel as a vineyard in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus here is drawing again from the prophet Isaiah as he portrays the kingdom as a banquet. And if there's one section in Isaiah that he's drawing from here, it is one of my favorite parts of Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8. In fact, if you have a pew Bible open right now at Luke 14, I'd invite you just to keep your place in Luke 14 and flick back to Isaiah 25. It's on page 586 in the pew Bibles, or you can just note it down to look at it later. Because here is a, such an important passage. The prophet Isaiah is looking to the future and the preparations that God is making for his people for the future. And here's what Isaiah says. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So when you think of the best meal that you've ever had, I wonder what you think of, where it was. For some of you, maybe it was right in your own home, your own apartment, made by someone in your family or by a friend, or perhaps it was at a a particular restaurant. I'm still trying to get my head around the diversity and the the richness of the New York restaurant scene. If you've just arrived in the city and you're looking for uh, any restaurant recommendations, I'm not the person that you should ask. I, I, I still... I'm still trying to make head or tail of it. But if you were looking for a recommendation of a restaurant in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, where my wife and I were living before we moved to New York, then hands down, it is easily Tallulah's Table on State Street, right in the center of town. They have this eight-course tasting menu, which is just to be eaten to be believed. Mind you, you do have to plan ahead because Tallulah's Table only takes reservations a year in advance for the date that you're looking to eat. But it's well worth the planning, I I promise you. Well, here God is promising to lay on a lavish feast that far surpasses any restaurant meal that you have ever eaten, because the food at God's banquet will be beyond compare. The wine will be aged to absolute perfection. And all of this, of course, was intended as a picture of a, a world that will be made perfect, where everyone present at the table will get to enjoy God's presence to the full, a new world where there will be total provision and plenty and satisfaction, and it's all represented through this lavish feast. And notice here that in Isaiah's description of this great feast, even death itself is on the menu, that God is going to swallow it up too. And with death consumed by God, the shroud of pain and sorrow and grief in this world will be removed, and God promises that He can and He will wipe away every tear from every eye of those who are gathered at that table. So that's all in the background here as Jesus begins this story. Isn't that just such a glorious picture of God and His kingdom and His promises? I mean, some of us have have listened to the lie in the past that God is a God who is miserly and vindictive and, and mean, who doesn't want you to enjoy life now or life in the future. And that just doesn't really seem to fit with this picture of the God of the Bible who loves to throw the best of parties. 
But what Jesus then emphasizes from Isaiah 25 as he starts the story is not only how God is so generous in his preparation and his provision for this feast, but also how his generosity extends to the multitude of people who are invited to the feast. He says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And when the day and the time comes for the feast, to begin, we read in verse 17, the master sent his servant out to everyone who had been invited to tell them to come because now everything is ready. In other words, there was absolutely nothing to do except turn up. You didn't need to pay anything. You didn't need to dress a certain way. You didn't have to bring a potluck dish to share. You didn't have to offer a bottle of wine to the host. You just had to come because everything had been done for you. Just come. Such was the mercy of this master, such is the kindness and the abundant generosity of our God. That brings us to the second point of the parable, which is the reality of our rejections. Look at what happens next in the parable once the invitation to come had been extended, verses 18 to 20. They all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, a little background here might be helpful. In a traditional Middle Eastern village, if someone decided to host a banquet, the invitation process really had two stages. First, the host would send out the initial invitation to all his friends, all his neighbors, to see who was available. And then on the basis of the number of positive RSVPs received, the host would then decide how much food he would need to have prepared. And then the day of the banquet would come, and the animals would be cooked, the, the vegetables prepared, the wine delivered, and then when everyone was ready, the host would send, the master would send the, the servant out a second time for sort of the phase two summons of the invitation. Please come, everything is ready. And it's at this point where the parable of the great banquet becomes the parable of the lame excuses. I mean, what happens here would be like you've invited some friends over for a dinner party. They've all arrived. They're all sitting in your apartment enjoying drinks. And then after an appropriate amount of time, you announce the sort of phase two invitation part of, of the invitation to everyone that the meal is ready. You ask them to come and to take a seat at your dining table. And your guests, however, then stand up and they proceed to move towards the door, making their excuses as they go. The first says, oh, I have to go home to water my plants. And the second says, oh, I have to feed my cat today. And the third says, you know, I've got bills on my desk that need to be paid. Whereupon all three head to the door, having given what amounts to pathetically weak excuses. I mean, sort of the dog ate the homework sort of weak excuses. So just think about the excuses made in this parable, in the setting that Jesus is telling the parable. As, as at this tension-filled table, this one guest comes up with this pious-sounding declaration, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Because, and the assumption here is, behind that declaration, is that the speaker and everyone else who's there around these tables assumed that they not only had, knew who had been invited to the table, but they also knew who was guaranteed a place at this feast. The guaranteed places, of course, were for them, the religious, the Pharisees, the leaders. And Jesus in the parable is, is telling them, no, actually the sad reality in this parable is that you're the excuse makers. That's the initial round of invitations 
to the banquet of the kingdom had been issued to the people of Israel by the Old Testament prophets and all the religious types. They said, oh yes, of course, we'll be there. Wouldn't miss it for the world. You can count on us. But now the banquet time had arrived. The kingdom of God had arrived because the king had arrived, namely Jesus. And it's Jesus who's the master in this parable who issues the phase two invitation, come for everything is ready. And what had the religious leaders done in response to Jesus' invitation? Pathetic excuse after pathetic excuse after pathetic excuse. They'd rejected the invitation. In fact, if you look closely at verse 18, everyone had rejected the invitation. All had made excuse. There, there was no one without excuse here because everyone had made an excuse. Now, when you put these first two points of the parable together, the the, ma- the master and his mercy and the reality of our rejections, you start to see the sting in this particular tale, T-A-L-E, that God has extended unbelievable, extravagant generosity and grace to everyone who's pictured in this banquet. He has invited all of us to attend, but it's we who have spurned the invitation. And that flies in the face of what seems to be the common assumption of so many people these days, that we're sort of in this cosmic game of hide-and-go-seek with God, and that we're the seekers, we're the ones looking, and God has somehow gone off and hidden in some obscure corner of His universe so that He can't easily be found by us. And Jesus is saying here, no, actually, it's the exact opposite. God's the seeker, and we're the hiders. God is the invitation extender, and we're the excuse makers. The only people to blame for our absence at this great feast, according to Jesus here, is ourselves. But notice in that regard as well that the people to whom this parable is directed are the religious ones. It's the church people. It's people like me. It's people like many of you. And what was true then is true today too, that when it comes to Christianity, it's often the case that the hardest people to persuade to accept the invitation to the banquet are the people who have grown up surrounded by it. And in this regard, familiarity does indeed sometimes breed contempt. One of my uncles, my uncle Derek, uh, died last month, the age of 88. He, uh, for most of his life, he lived in the city of Winchester on the south coast of England. But just an hour north of his house was the setting for a fable that has been told over the years of a young man who lived a couple of centuries ago in the rolling hills of the county of Wessex in England. This young man had heard of this huge white horse that had been mysteriously carved into an unknown hillside by somewhere by ancient hands. The man was so captivated by this rumor that he set off in search of this fabled horse, traveling far and wide looking for it. But alas, he could not locate it. And in the end, he returns home, disappointed and weary, reluctantly concluding that this white horse must not exist at all. But then as he surveyed his own village from a distant vantage point, as he returned towards home, he was astonished to see the object of his quest, that the white horse had been there all the time. Indeed, his village lay at the very center of it, but he'd never been able to recognize it, concealed as it was by the familiarity of his own environment. 
And that story, while set in a real place, really was intended as an, as an allegory. It speaks to, to those of us who have set off on an intellectual or a spiritual pilgrimage with deep questions that we want answered. And we might visit exotic places looking for answers, or read foreign books, or maybe even sample weird experiences, because it's all because deep down you're conscious of this something beyond the seen world that's summoning you, something or someone you, you know you're supposed to discover. But in spite of all your efforts, and as time goes on, your quest bears no fruit, and you just become increasingly disillusioned and perhaps cynical. You, you don't find the white horse that you were seeking. But the story suggests perhaps what you just need to do is come home. If you did, you might be surprised to find the answers that you were looking for were there already, perhaps as close as that family Bible, second shelf down, three books in, or that church that's just a hop and a skip from your apartment building. You simply didn't recognize the unique value of what was there because it was just too commonplace, too familiar. I have several friends who are walking the the Camino de Santiago in Spain this summer, and one of them a few weeks ago posted uh, these words on Facebook. She wrote, the Camino de Santiago is an ancient spiritual pilgrimage through the small towns, mountains, wilderness, historic centers, cathedrals, and abbeys of Europe. I am not a Christian, she wrote, but I am always seeking some greater point, capital P, of it all, capital A. And I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that this person got enough of a good dose of religion at a younger age that sadly increased her resistance to the real thing as she's encountered it later in her life. Perhaps it was moralistic Sunday school lessons or legalistic preaching or just boring church services, but they all kind of come back to her like a flood when she gets even a whiff of real Christianity that those members, memories all conspire to create the spiritual immunity in her to anything and everything associated with Jesus. So that with the religious leaders at this Sabbath dinner with, with Jesus, familiarity for her has bred a certain contempt. Familiarity does and can breed contempt, but Jesus here demonstrates as the parable continues that contempt is actually a sin that he does not treat lightly. Look at the first part of verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. We don't like to think of Jesus as getting angry at us, do we? But Jesus indicates here that it's rather naive of us to think that he isn't angry with us when we would persistently and repeatedly insist on finding excuses for putting other things before him in our lives. I mean, this banquet is offered free to us but it was not cheap for Jesus. To have our sins forgiven, to, to give us a present that is wonderfully looked, over, looked after, to, to guarantee our future cost Jesus his life. As the host at this banquet, he covered the entire cost of the banquet. Indeed, here in Luke 14, if you look at the trajectory of how Luke tells his gospel, Jesus is slowly on his way to Jerusalem where he will die on a cross. He will pay the entire bill through his shed blood on that cross so that you and I could be invited to this banquet without any cost to us. That Jesus thirst on the cross to death so that we could 
drink at this table and find life. And for us to turn our back on that invitation and make excuses is essentially to slap the face of a divine host who has given us everything because he loves us. We tend to think that people won't get into heaven because they're not good enough. And Jesus seems to be saying here, no, it's not really that. It's that people would prefer just not to come. The reality of our rejections. So there's the master and his mercy. There's the reality of the rejections. And then thirdly, there's the gospel we've been given. Look at verse 21 again. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to a servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, but I remember at recess as a nine or 10 year old boy at White Abbey Primary School in, in Belfast, Northern Ireland, when we would play pickup soccer games. And, and usually we played with Connor McMurtry's soccer ball. But if Connor McMurtry McMurt would quite occasionally get mad or upset about something going on in the game, whether a, a tackle that he was the victim of or just his team was losing in the game, whereupon he would pick up his ball, he'd walk off the playground, and he said, okay, we're not playing anymore, the game is over. Well, praise God that Jesus is not like Connor McMurtry. Because Yes, the master becomes angry here, but his anger doesn't result in him sort of picking up the proverbial ball and saying, okay, curtains, nothing more. The, the banquet's over. No, look what happens. The master says, okay, excuses? Let's just send out more invitations so that instead of a withdrawal of grace, there's actually this further extension of grace. What a beautiful thing. And so the master sends out more invitations to other people, but not just any other people. Look who he sends it out. He tells his servant to invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. These were the kinds of people who would not have been allowed into the Jewish temple. But Jesus says, oh, everything's different now, now that the king has come. These people are most welcome into my kingdom. It's a picture how Jesus had come, as he says elsewhere in the Gospels, for the sick, not for the righteous. And what Jesus meant there was those who thought themselves righteous, the people who were sitting around this dinner table with him on this particular occasion. This guest at the Pharisee's house who had exclaimed, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And yet here through the parable, Jesus is saying, oh yes, blessed indeed, blessed indeed. But those who will eat bread in God's kingdom aren't who you think they are. Because Jesus throws the doors open to the kingdom and its community to those who in that culture were typically marked for exclusion, the least and the lost and the left out. Jesus says, blessed are they as they are seated at the feast of the kingdom of God. Frederick Beekner, the writer who died actually a year ago this coming Tuesday, provides this delightful contemporary description of the kind of people who you could picture at this banquet. He writes, the beautiful people all sent in their excuses, of course, their real estate, their livestock, their sex lives. So the host sends his social secretary out into the streets to bring in the poor, the maimed, the blind, the lame. The string ensemble strikes up the overture to the bartered bride. The champagne glasses are filled. The cold pheasant is passed around. And there they sit by candlelight with their white canes and their empty sleeves their orthopedic shoes, their sleazy clothes, their aluminum walkers. A woman with a hair lip proposes a toast, 
An old man with the face of Lear on the heath and a party hat does his best to rise to his feet. A deaf person thinks people are starting to go home and pushes back from the table as rose petals float in the finger bowls. As the parable moves towards its conclusion, the servant comes back and says to the master, we've extended those invitations, but there's still room at the table. Pick it up in verse 23. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Master sends the servant out to the highways and the byways, anywhere he can find people to persuade them. The point here being that in Jesus' day, this banquet wasn't just going to be for the outcasts in Jewish society. It turns out it's going to be for the Gentiles too. So the hour in the end could not have been more complete that those who were expecting to enter the kingdom because they had received advance invitation through the prophets would miss out. But those who had expected to be shut out because they were not good enough or perhaps because they had never even heard of the banquet because they were basically pagans would be the ones to enjoy it. In other words, the invitation then and right now, is extended to everyone. God is inviting every single one of us to his party. And there may be some of us who honestly, genuinely, are thinking to ourselves, well, no, there must be some mistake. You must have forgotten what I've done. He must have forgotten that incident in my past. He clearly is not remembering how I've lived much of my life. And Jesus says, no, I I promise you there's there's no mistake. I, I know everything about your past. I know everything about you. But this banquet is for people just like you. So just give your name, just give my name to the maitre d'. Tell him you're in Jesus's party. Put your trust in me and come, come. Because there's still room at the table. And for those of us who've already fully accepted God's invitation to the feast, here's one closing observation. Did you notice how the invitations get distributed in this parable? It's not the host himself who takes them out, it's the servant. But notice that the servant gets so caught up with the generosity and the grace of his master that his own heart becomes generous and gracious. So he says, sir, what you have commanded has been done, but still there's room. Once we ourselves have accepted the invitation, Jesus calls on us to pass the invitation on to others. That's one clear way you'll know if you've understood this gospel of grace, that once you understand that you're on the guest list for for Jesus' great feast, not because of any merit of your own, but because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross and through his resurrection, because of his grace, you'll do everything that you can to invite others to the feast so that the message on our lips really just comes down to one simple word. It's come. The master tells the servant to go and tell the people to come. Come, come. The feast is ready. The door is open. Come to the feast. And through it, through its host, have your past forgiven and your present wonderfully looked after and your future guaranteed. Jesus says to those of us who love him and follow him, I want you to go and I want you to invite people to come. Your co-workers, because there's still room at the table. And the people you share your apartment with, because there's still 
room at the table, and your family members and those friends that just seem so far from God right now because there's still room at the table. And for any of us here who have not yet accepted the invitation, Jesus said, come, for all has been made ready. There's still room at the table for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are such a great host. You're the one who has done absolutely everything necessary so that we could share in this banquet. And Lord, we pray that our pride, our excuses would not stop us from coming to your feasts and receiving your salvation and finding the abundance of life that you want to give to us, not just in the future, but even right now. And so we pray, Lord, that as we come to this table, that we might hear that invitation as well to come, for all has been made ready, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.